when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of From Hostage to Hero. Sari Delamont here with you, the attorney whisperer. Thanks so much, everyone, for sending your reviews of the book. We are enjoying getting those. If you have not reviewed the book yet, uh, the book being From Hostage to Hero, you can go to Trial Guides, trialguides.com, and do that there. And uh, we certainly appreciate you doing that. And if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, please give us a review there as well. At least hit that star button. Give us a star review. Um, We're currently at five stars on iTunes. Thank you so much. Well, today we are talking about how jurors don't have to like everything you do. And I think this is really important because so many of you end up in my office with these horror stories that you have been carrying for years about something that you tried at trial and the jurors were made sure to let you know that they didn't like it. Or even in our studio classes, for example, we have the jurors give both written and verbal feedback. And oftentimes, uh, we'll, you'll look at that feedback and you'll go, well, then I shouldn't be doing these things that you suggested, sorry, because the juror didn't like it. Or even worse, in my opinion, is you've just heard stuff out there in the CLE world or amongst colleagues or you observe trials on your own. It's not even direct feedback to you. And you think, oh, I could never do that because my colleague tried that and the jurors hated it. This is a dangerous and slippery slope, my friends. And so that's what we're going to be talking about in today's episode, how you do not have to be so concerned about the jurors' reactions to the things that you are tempting and trying in trial. Now, if you think about it, most of us have made up some rules about the things we can and cannot do in trial. For women, for example, a big one is, I've heard this one so many times that it's almost become like a legend, never wear a red dress. That's the one I hear all the time. And, you know, this can be taken and and brought into many contexts. Never wear anything flashy. Never wear a Rolex watch. Never wear a fancy suit. Uh, Never do this. Always do that. So on and so forth. Now, all of those things have a little gem of truth in them. Because in some context with some jury in some jurisdiction, a juror or jurors did not like what it, what was it being attempted or what was being worn or whatever else may be. But here's the problem, my friends, is that if we take all of these rules and all the things that have happened to plaintiff attorneys and criminal defense attorneys across the board and put them all in a book of things that you should never attempt at trial you guys would have nothing left to do. (laughs) There would be so many arbitrary rules because one juror didn't like X, Y, Z that none of y'all have been able to try or do or wear anything at all. You just have to show up and be these robots that were programmed to not offend. Now, I'm not suggesting 
by the way, that you uh, try or attempt to offend jurors. What I am suggesting in today's episode, and what I really hope you get, is that you don't have to be so concerned with how jurors are, are viewing whatever it is you're attempting to do or wear or say um, as, as much as you are. Meaning I'm going to teach you today, and I've been doing this now more often in my studio classes as well, of how to unpack the feedback that you are getting and how to view it and how to incorporate it into your work. And also, in addition to that, show you when it is okay to purposefully do things that may not please the jury. Because there's a place for that too. And I think if you understand the difference, this will really lighten your load and loosen you up and allow you to go out there and not be so afraid. Because that's the thing here. And you know, I talk about fear a lot. We have this fear of jurors, right? Because they hold so much power, even though they themselves feel powerless. That's the whole point of the From Hostage to Hero book is that we view them as powerful and we're scared of them, but they don't feel powerful and they're scared of us because we hold the keys to their freedom. So everybody's scared. Everybody's freaked out. And this, as we know, is a problem in terms of your decision making and everything else. So that's what the book is all about. But here's another reason why we're scared of them. It's not just so much that, you know, they have they hold the the power is that they have the ability to shame us, to make us feel bad about the things that we're attempting to do. And so I'm hoping today to to give you some insight as to why they say the things that they do and to give you a broader view of what those things actually mean and how you can see them differently and release yourself from this, I would say, obsession with never offending jurors on any level. All right, so let's let's start, let's uh, dive in because here's the thing: if you don't get this at some point in your career, you have an opportunity to drive yourself crazy with all the things that you stack up in the I should never do this because a juror, one juror once said they didn't like it, right? That has the ability to drive you absolutely crazy. So let's start by talking about unpack how to unpack the feedback that you're getting. I want to give you a different lens than maybe you've considered before. And so a couple of things that I think you need to understand in order to understand why jurors are saying the things that they're saying in particular. So let me give you some context. So for example, in our studio classes here in Portland, we have the voir dire studio and the opening statement studio. And the reason they're called a studio is because we have the whole thing wired up with cameras. It's kind of like a TV studio, right? And we're we're um, broadcasting that to the back of the room. So the five attorneys who are not participating um, can watch the one person who's in front of the mock jury. And there's as much learning going on in that back room is there that as there is for the attorney that is presenting their voir dire opening. <clears throat> but in the voir dire and opening st- uh, statement studios, we really talk to the jurors that we're, we want your your input, not so much on the case, but on the attorney themselves. 
So although the attorneys will have a chance to talk to you and you can tell them what you think about their case, the reason they're really here is to find out how they show up in front of you. Did they uh, communicate clearly? Did you feel that the attorney was listening? Did you feel that they were trying to manipulate you or get you to, to vote their way? How are they showing up authentically? Do they view, do they seem nervous? So we're really looking at the, how you as an attorney show up in front of the jurors versus how is this case going to play out for jurors? It's very different than a focus group, which makes it a lot more personal quite frankly. And I, I've heard from a lot of people who said, I've been wanting to come to your studios for years, but I'm scared. Well, first of all, you don't need to be scared. And you can talk to any of the people that have been out. They've been afraid too, but then they've they've really said that it's a transform, transformative experience. Partially, or maybe major, majorly, what's the word I want to be using here, uh, because of how I teach them to incorporate this feedback. So that's our context, okay? So we've got these jurors in this room that are now specifically asked to look not at the case so much, but at the attorney themselves. And so when we bring the attorney back out to get their their verbal feedback, a couple of things happen. The jurors start to give feedback about things that they're noticing. And here's what's really important. And that's why I'm there to, uh, ho- to help kind of translate that feedback in the moment for the attorney. Jurors can't always articulate what's bothering them. This is very common. Read the research on brain science and decision making and and when people give reasons for why they do things, they are normally wrong. And I, I feel like I've talked about this study before, but they the the study where they t- took the um <clears throat> elite athletes and ask them to break down how it is they're doing their golf swing or their tennis swing or, you know, whatever it might be. And they would try to articulate it. But then when they went back and they watched the muscle movements and the brain activity and the whole thing, they weren't describing it correctly at all. And so we have this perception in our in ourselves of what we think is going on. And especially if we're confused about it, Um, But that's not actually what's happening. So for example, one of the things that I teach in my studio classes and in my seminars is what we call the at ready or high expectations arm positioning. People don't know what to do with their hands when they're not gesturing. So for example, in the voir dire class, much of the time you're not gesturing because you're you're listening, right? So what do you do your hands when you're listening? This is always a problem. So people put them in front of them in fig leaf position, which never looks good or in their pockets or on their hips or, you know, crossing their arms. And I always say, avoid all of that. What I want you to do instead is just to hold both of your arms parallel to the ground, okay? And you can lightly cup them in front of you. Um, Some people steeple. I don't love steepling as much because it looks more like I'm really considering what you're saying, interrogating you. I just kind of like a more neutral cupping. And many times, I wouldn't say many, but there has been times. Let me put it that way. Uh, The jurors have said, why is he holding the arms like that? So it would be very common or very normal or natural for the attorney to go, oh, see, the juror doesn't like this, so I shouldn't be holding my arms like this. Sorry, why'd you tell me to do this? And here's what 
I do when I'm in that situation or I'm translating that feedback. Normally, I have noticed that the attorney has something in their hands and they're grasping it tightly or they're not breathing or they're jiggling their wedding ring. There's always a reason why the jurors are finding that particular stance or nonverbal or whatever it is we're talking about uh, as as annoying or irritating or just some, something they've noticed. And yet, as attorneys, you want to jump down the hole of, well, they didn't like it, so I shouldn't do it. Just keep in mind that jurors can't always articulate why what's bothering them is bothering them. And that's a natural, normal human thing. It does not mean we shouldn't attempt to do the things that we're trying to do. In addition, another reason to, or lens to think about juror feedback is jurors often, as all humans do, project their own stuff onto you. So I talked about this in the um, How Women Should Behave in Court podcast. If you haven't listened to that, I think it's number 40, episode number 40. Um, <clears throat> but we talked about in that podcast how when in studio classes, uh, for example, an opening statement, we, we really dive deep into uh, storytelling and we have the juror or the attorneys getting down on the floor and acting things out and using different voices. And the women are always more harshly graded or got get more harsh feedback than the men. And what I try to explain to my female attorneys is that normally that feedback comes from other women because women tend to think, oh, honey, don't do that. You're going to get judged harshly. And then they themselves judge the woman harshly. It's, it's a weird, almost protective mechanism thinking if that was me doing that, I would be afraid of how other people would react. So honey, don't do that. Don't, I don't want you to do that either. I don't think jurors can articulate this, but I've seen it enough, especially coming from other women, that I know this is true. Now think for a moment, if we start taking all of this feedback as gospel truth, how wrong we would be. Maybe in the first example, we just need to breathe or learn to stop playing with our wedding ring or put the pen down from writing on the flip chart. And maybe in the second example, we just need to understand that as women, we need to go first and we need to confidently own our storytelling and the things that we're attempting in court. I mean, this is another part of what jurors are trying to do is they're trying to figure out what it is that you're doing. Remember that jurors have the least amount of information out of everyone in the room. You know, it kind of reminds me, have you ever played that game where you go out, one person goes out of the room and everyone in the room decides who this person is? So let's say Queen of England. And then the other person comes in and they have 21 questions to ask and then guess who they are. So they say, Am I a famous person? And then the people in the group will go, yeah, you are. And they'll say, hmm, am I female or male? And that's two questions. They say female. And then they continue to go until they guess or not that they are the Queen of England. Now, you have to understand that this is exactly what jurors are going through. They're trying to guess. And in many times, they're trying to help you, right? They don't know what the case is about, especially in voir dire. So they're attempting to figure it out. And so in that attempt to figure it out, they start to take clues and things that you're doing and they may read them incorrectly because they're in this frame of mind of, I have zero information and so I'm trying to get information. I'm trying to be smart here. 
And so they're trying to get a, a, a leg up, so to speak. And many times that causes them to put you down. That's normal human behavior, is it not? Again, yet another thing that we should not take to heart. We should understand this as a lens and a frame of this is where the jurors are. They are confused and therefore they're going to try to appear smart and say things and they're going to try to project. They're going to going to uh, try to figure out what it is that they're seeing and why it's bothering them, but they're often wrong as humans are because they can't put a finger on it. You as attorneys need to take all of that information into consideration as you incorporate the feedback from from the jurors. And that's what I help you do. And that's what I want you to start doing for yourself, that you don't just take all of that as gospel truth, as as this is just how it is. I shouldn't do that because the jurors didn't like it. Because that really brings us to another part of this, another lens I want you to consider is that sometimes you're going to do things on purpose that the jury doesn't like because you are holding a bigger vision. Now, a big thing that I always talk about with my, with my especially my voir dire groups that come through, is that what we are asking jurors to do is a group activity. It is not an individual activity. And yet... Most of you have been trained in interpersonal communication versus group communication, which causes you to do all sorts of weird things. One of them in this context is to never, ever piss off individual jurors. Let me tell you, my friends, when you change your lens from individual juror focus to group focus, there will be times that it will be demanded by the group that you shut, for example, a juror down. Because that juror is talking too much, talking about too much weird things, doing weird things, whatever it may be. And in the old paradigm, in the old lens of I should never do anything that pisses jurors off, you would never do that. But when now when you hold the lens of the group is the most important thing, my job is to show up and help this group form and do a job as a group, you now have to run the risk of not making every single juror happy because you can't do that anyway. You have to hold the lens of the group now. And there are other reasons, for example, that you might do things on purpose that individual jurors or even the whole group doesn't like, but is for their benefit or maybe even for your benefit. For example, in the Designed Alliance, where we talk about how jury selection is normally where, you know, the attorneys question you and you you answer and we decide whether we like you based on your answers and we don't think that's fair and we want to do it differently, but we need to have a conversation. Who here is willing to have a conversation? You ask the jury to raise their hand and say yes to you. So then you say, now I'm under some restrictions from the judge. I can't talk about lots of details or or evidence, but I can talk about some of the principles in the case. Now, knowing I can't talk about you know facts or lots of details, are you still willing to have a conversation with me? Raise your hand jury says yes to you. Now, one last thing. If at the end of this, you say, look, now that we've had this conversation and I get what this case is about, I still don't want to be on this case. This is not the right case for me. And you let me know that. I will do everything in my power to ensure you go home, but know that I'm limited because there's another side represented here and they get to make some choices too. 
are you still willing to have a conversation with me? And you ask the juries to raise their hand and say yes to you a third time. Now, it is often that the jurors will give the feedback in our Voidier Studio classes, okay, that's really tedious. Why are you asking us three times to say yes? And I say simply to the jurors, it's just designed that way. It's, you know, it's, it's something that I ask the attorneys to do. But here's the real reason. I mean, that's an old sales technique, is it not? <laughs> to ask people to say yes to you, the more they say yes to you, the more that they are conditioned to say yes to you. It is for the benefit of forming the group as well. The more we can get the group to raise their hands in unison, go back to some of the group uh, formation episodes I've talked about. Anytime you can get the group to do something together, they start to form. And this is at the very beginning of Wadir. So there's a very specific reason why we're asking the jurors to say both say yes to us, that's a sale technique, and get them to raise their hand as a group three times over before we even get started, that the jury doesn't get or understand even though it's for their benefit, meaning we are giving them the gift of each other. That's what group dynamics is, so that they have each other when they're back in the verdict room. And we're doing that by getting them to look and talk and breathe and do things together. But they don't understand that yet at the beginning of the process. So what a mistake it would be for you to hear after trying the designed alliance, oh, I don't like how, you know, we had to do that three times and go, well, then I shouldn't do it. Listen, Lots of times I talk about the analogy of wadir or the jury or you being like a parent-child relationship, meaning your job as a parent, let's just talk about parents. I think our number one job as parents <clears throat> is to train and teach our children to leave us. Isn't that the number one thing that we could do for them is to create independent beings who can navigate this world, both even as we're here, but especially after we're gone? At least I think that's what my job is. And to do that in love, it's very similar for the relationship you have with jurors. Your job is to equip these jurors to do this job without you. This is why group formation is so important because you won't be there back in the verdict room when they have to do their biggest part of their job. So you are giving them the gift of each other. And you are training them how to leave you. And like all parents, when their kids turn 18 or when we have to give the jury over to themselves and they go back in the verdict room, we don't feel like we prepared them as well as we should have, right? But we've done the best that we could. At least we hope so. Now, just like in a parenting relationship, is our number one concern that our kids like us? Yeah, I don't think so. And if that is your number one concern, that you, the jurors like you and that you never do anything to piss them off or confuse them or whatever, and of course, we're not trying to do those things on purpose unless we are, like the, the group dynamic stuff, you aren't going to have a really hard time in the courtroom. But if instead you go with this idea that your job is to prepare them and it's not to be liked, it's not to to make sure that you never offend or step on toes, but your number one job is to form this group, this team, and get them working together so that they can do this without you. And to do that, you're going to do some things that they may not understand, that they may not necessarily like, but that that's your primary job. Then your experience in the courtroom will begin to change. Then you'll know how to incorporate some of this feedback. You'll start to hear the things they don't like and you'll start to put it in the larger picture of going, ah, I don't think they like that because of this, but I'm still going to do it anyway. Or I don't think they like this because I didn't perform that skill exactly the way uh, 
I wanted to perform. I wasn't breathing well enough. I was doing this weird thing. You start to see the larger picture, which is what I want all of you to see. Because one whiff or sniff from the jury that they don't like something you do, you shut it down. And that is not the place that you want to play, my friends. You are there to lead this team. And leaders are not people who are constantly tiptoeing, bowing down to their followers. No, they are leading. That is what they are doing. So I'm going to leave you with that analogy and caution you to incorporate the feedback from jurors with these new lenses now that sometimes they can't articulate why whatever's bothering them is bothering them. So they make up reasons which may not be the right reason. That sometimes they project their own stuff onto you. Sometimes they try to elevate their status over you by putting you down because they're confused. And sometimes there's just things that we need to do whether they like it or not because it's good for them and for the group and for us. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) I think and I hope that this has been helpful and it releases you of some of this fear around your feedback. They're doing the best they can. You're doing the best that you can. Let's continue to elevate your awareness of what's happening here and not be so reactive in the courtroom. All right. I'm here to help as always. Have a great week, everybody. That's it for this episode of From Hostage to Hero. But head to our website, sorrydlm.com, for other must-have resources from Sorry Delamart. Read the transcript of this podcast, watch trial tip videos, or download your free copy of Sorry's article, Why Jurors Hate the Hobby Question. We're glad you joined us today. And until next time, remember that to lead a hostage to freedom, you must first free yourself.